Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Robert Felix. He is the author of Not by Fire, But by Ice, a breakthrough book that is completely changing the way we understand climate and weather. He's also the author of Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps, The True Origin of Species. He is the founder and owner of the famous website IceAgeNow.com, one of the top climate websites in the world. He also appeared on my show a year ago with Dr. Timothy Ball and Joe Dalio, which produced one of the most compelling climate shows, establishing a frame of reference for climate in the world that's been all over the world. It is my great pleasure today to invite Robert back to talk to us about Magnetic reversals. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Robert Felix to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim. Thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, I've been having fun with this. The, the IceAgeNow.com website is, is getting more and more hits every day. And now the, now the new website, uh, Evolutionary Leaps, is, is beginning to, to pick up traction, too. Well, I thought we would talk about evolutionary leaps today because it's the thing that nobody's looking for. Dixie Lee Ray, a former chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, had confided that her next book would be about magnetic reversals because they were so important. And yet you're the one who did it. Why did you write this book? Well, it, it, uh, I guess it was an accidental sort of thing to begin with. But as I was researching and writing my first book, writing uh, Not by Fire But by Ice, I kept noticing that the magnetic reversals, they would just be mentioned in the literature, just in, in passing as, as, oh, well, it's sort of something that happened at the time, but it doesn't mean anything. But the, the more I read and the more I studied, the more I realized that, that evolutionary leaps, actually that the jumps in evolution appear to take place at geomagnetic reversals. Explain what a geomagnetic reversal is. What is a magnetic reversal? Well, a magnetic reversal, uh, simply put, is, is a time when compasses would have pointed toward the Antarctic instead of toward the Arctic. And, and that has happened a lot more than anyone realizes. Uh, uh, the, the scientists who study magnetic reversals figure that, that the Earth's magnetic field has probably been reversed for half of history. Now, I'm not talking about the Earth flipping upside down. I mean, some people call talk about pole reversals, and they're talking about the Earth uh, flipping upside down. I don't know that it does that or not. I don't think it does. But that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Thank you for explaining. It clarified a little bit more, though. How come the magnetic reversal would happen? Nobody knows, actually. Uh, there, there's talk about... Uh, about uh, what's happening in the core of the Earth, and then it's made of iron, and, and that various things happen to it there. I, I'm going out on a limb here, though, is because I think those magnetic reversals come as a result of something called precession of the equinoxes. Explain it. And okay, our Earth is is not. If you, if you look at our planet from from space, it's not it's not straight up and down. It doesn't point straight north and south uh, in in relation to the solar system. It's actually tilted about twenty three and a half degrees, and that uh, tilt changes. Is 
fluctuates up and down a little bit. But the other thing is that our axis of rotation, which is is what we, you know, the axis that our Earth planets around, that our that our Earth rotates around, is constantly moving. Right now, if you could put a, a stick all the way through the Earth at its axis of rotation, that stick would point toward the star Polaris, toward the North Star. But it slowly turns, and and so 11,500 years from now, our axis of rotation will be pointing toward the star Vega, and 11,500 years from then, it will be back pointing toward the star Polaris again. So it's, it, if you've ever watched a top as, as it spins, you'll notice that the, the top never stands straight up and down. Right. And, and this is the same sort of thing. Is that, and the, the top also precesses is that it, it's, it's on a tilt, but it's that uh, axis of rotation slowly turns. Same thing with the Earth. Well, what I see, and there's controversy on this, but what I see is that the Earth's magnetic field makes what is called a magnetic excursion about every 11,500 years at the half point of, of this precession of the equinoxes. So there's something there, I think, that triggers these magnetic reversals. Is that our magnetic field strength changes in, in sync with that same session of the equinoxes, it goes down and down and down, and, and I think that the reversals or excursions, depending on how you want to define them, take place at the same time, and that's when the evolutionary leaps and extinctions take place. You said in Chapter 3 of your book, mass extinctions have been the rule rather than the exception for the 3.5 billion years that life has existed on this planet. Almost identical, each extinction was abrupt each was extensive, and each was caused by some temporary, unexplainable event. What could that temporary, unexplainable event have been? That's, that event is what I think is the magnetic reversal. Now, you know, the, the fallback position, it seems like, for, for science here for many, many years is when they can't explain something, they blame it on a meteor or a comet. I mean, they they blame the the dinosaur extinction on a on a on the meteor on and and they found that uh, uh, Chicxulub crater down in in the Gulf of Mexico that they think was created by a a uh, meteor. I don't think so. I think that that was created by underwater explosion created by a, a uh, magnetic reversal. But they, they blame uh, 248 million years ago. They, they blame the, the great Permian extinction on a meteor. And they, they blame, blame the, the Siberian traps, which was a huge lava flow on a meteor. And, and yet, and yet they, they, they don't take into account the magnetic reversals. And, and more recently, and this is, the, uh, this is one that I talk a, a lot about in the book, but more recently, just 12,000 years ago, now the latest thing is to blame the death of the mammoths and the mastodons and the saber-toothed cats and, and the great dire, the great dire wolf and the short-faced bear. Now the, the thing is to blame that on a, a meteor explosion. And, and I'm saying, no way. This is a magnetic reversal because about 12,000 years ago when, when these animals went extinct, that's when we had the Gothenburg magnetic reversal. 
do you think it's a deliberate attempt not to address this phenomenon because we don't understand it? What do you think is the reason it's not being identified as a cause? No, I don't think it's a deliberate attempt. I just, I just don't think we've reached that point yet. It's still, it's still being studied. But you know, I just, I just look at this. You know, I, I, I think of Charles Darwin. He told us that evolution is slow and stately and orderly. And I think evolution works the same way as the extinctions that you just mentioned. That it comes along, it comes along very quickly, and so. I'm, I'm hoping that today we can talk about about the true origin of species being being magnetic reversals, and I hope that I can be able to show you that they they occur in a in a dependable, predictable cycle. And the other thing, a couple of other things, I in the book I show that radioactive radioactive materials pour onto our planet; they rain onto our planet in sync with magnetic reversals. I think those are what lead to the evolutionary leaps uh, or to mutations. And another thing I, I really want to talk about is the Carolina Bays. Talk about the Carolina Bays, because I know you're very excited about those. <laughs> I, I am. You know, I, I remember you talking about that last year. I want you to hit that again. Okay, yeah. I, I, when I wrote the book, I thought the idea of Carolina Bays was going to be so exciting to people, because the Carolina Bays are something that we have in the United States. The, the Carolina Bays are huge holes in the ground that were they were punched into the ground about 12,000 years ago at uh, at the approximately at the Gothenburg magnetic reversal I think we'll eventually find out the, at exactly the the reversal but in some places they're called Carolina bays they're called Maryland basins they're called Grady ponds they're called Salinas in Texas because uh rainwater collects in there and then evaporates and becomes salty but uh, and I just found out in the last couple of weeks that Australia is pock- pockmarked with what look like Carolina bays. But here's the thing: now these are not just little holes in the ground. Some of these these depressions in the ground are the si- are, are an acre in size, but some of them are as much as six to seven miles across. So some of these holes in the ground uh, that were caused by explosions in the sky. Uh, some of these holes in the ground are bigger than nearby cities. They're huge. Maybe that's why people think they were meteorites. Well, yes. There's a, uh, a, a book out, Cycle of Cosmic Catastrophes, by a, 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 written by a nuclear physicist, Richard Firestone, and, and by a geologist, Anthony West. But in their book, they do... Uh, they do guess that the Carolina Bays were created by a meteorite exploding in the sky. Now, here's the thing. There, there are two, more than two million Carolina Bays. I mean, I sure wouldn't have been wanting to stand at ground zero when all of those explosions went off and, and created two and a half million holes in the ground that are, are bigger than nearby cities. And these these things scar the landscape from Florida to to New Jersey to Texas, uh, and, and I mentioned I just had a, a reader. I didn't know this. I didn't mention this in the book, but I just had a reader uh, send me information about two weeks ago. Is is he saw when he was looking at Google Earth, and he was looking at Western Australia, he found what looked to be Carolina Bays there. These bays, the reason 
The reason scientists think that they were created by explosions in the sky, see, I think those explosions were caused by, triggered by magnetic reversals. But going with the meteor theory here for a little bit is that these bays are all elliptical. Every single one of them is elliptical in shape. And you can go on to Google Earth yourself if you have it, and you can see them. They're still there today. Is they're, Most of them now, if it's in a rainy area, they are uh, like swamps. They're, they're, they're shallow. Even though they may be seven miles across, they're still shallow. They're only 20 to 50 feet deep. But, but, and nobody even knew they existed until about, oh, the 1930s. They used to think they were just swamps. But then when they started flying over them, they realized, hey, these things are all elliptical. These are all oriented north and south. Uh, there are just so many, and, and some of them overlap other ones. And so they were obviously created by, by some sort of explosion in the sky. Uh, the thing is, though, I mean, they, they keep talking about meteors, but in North Carolina, in South Carolina, there are no meteorite fragments that anybody's discovered. But if, if anybody wants to go onto Google Earth, you can see them for yourself. I mean, if you look at uh, the North Carolina, South Carolina region, and then you zoom in uh, on an area about oh, 18 miles south of Fayetteville, for instance, you'll see 20 of those elliptical depressions in a tiny area, just maybe 12 miles by 9 miles across. And, and hundreds of them uh, surround oh, Lumberton, North Carolina. But it, it's, it's, it's just amazing and that, that no one has talked about these. I, I figured everybody in the Carolinas, I figured anybody near a, a Carolina Bay would, be, would just be astounded by this. So are we due for a magnetic reversal? I think we could be. Uh, and I and I can't say exactly how soon, but but they do occur in a cycle. Is is that uh, about twelve eleven thousand five hundred years ago to twelve thousand years ago, we did have what's called the the Gothenburg magnetic excursion. Twenty three thousand years ago, we had the uh, Mono Lake magnetic uh, excursion. The difference between an excursion and a reversal is in a reversal, the, the magnetic field goes south and stays there, whereas an excursion, it may go south for, for just, say, 500 years and then pops back up. So it's really, truly difficult to, to identify it in the geologic record. You've got to find a rock that comes from exactly that 500-year period. So it's, it's tough to find. But they, another magnetic reversal occurred about 33,500 years ago. I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that, that that's when the, uh, when the uh, Neanderthals went extinct, by the way. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, that, the, that the Neanderthals appeared on this, this Earth about 115,000 years ago at the Blake magnetic reversal. I, these just... There's too many coincidences. The other thing about meteors is I can't imagine that meteors uh, return and attack our planet every 11,500 years in sync with these magnetic reversals and in sync with precession of the equinoxes. I think it's an earthly process not coming from the solar system. It, because of this, of this uh, cycle, 
of, of magnetic reversals about every 11,500 years, we're due for another one. And the other reason I worry about it is that prior to all previous magnetic reversals, our magnetic field strength declined. It kept declining and declining until it reached about 15% of its normal strength, and then boom, we had the magnetic reversal. Well, our magnetic field strength has declined about two-thirds in the last 2,000 years since the time of Christ. And the rate of that decline is picking up. The, the rate of decline is now about 5% per year. So I can't say exactly when this is going to happen. I'm not going to go with the Mayan calendar thing. I had heard, and maybe this could be corrected, but when I interviewed Dr. Bonnelly in Canada, he said we're losing our magnetic field at 5% every 100 years. Yeah, is, is that, I'm sorry, that is, yeah. that is correct. Okay, that's what you meant, right? That is what I meant. Okay, good, all right. So the magnetic strength is getting less and less and less, and this is correlated with excursions or reversals? In some respects, the, the word ex, uh, excursions and reversals are the same because it actually right. does reverse. Right. So, so sometimes I do call it a reversal. But No, the scientists think that the last major reversal occurred about 780,000 years ago at the, the Brunhaus-Matoyama Brunhaus, uh, a boundary, what the, what that's what it's called. But and there was a giant extinction then, and, and a dissension into an ice age. By the way, that's another thing that happens with these Talk about reversals. That. Is Talk about that. We do enter into an uh, ice age. It seems like every single time. But before I forget this, though, there was a, a magnetic reversal about six hundred and forty thousand years ago called the Big Lost Magnetic Reversal. And that was just happens to be when Yellowstone exploded into in a, as a supervolcano, so that would have caused a major extinction. But it, it just when you go back through the record, there are just so many extinctions and ice ages that occur in sync with magnetic reversals, and there are so many jumps in evolution. I mean, I don't think it's just a coincidence that apes and humans branched apart about 5 million years ago at the end of Miocene at a magnetic reversal. I don't think it's a coincidence that Homo habilis appeared about 2 million years ago at a magnetic reversal. I don't think it's a coincidence that Australopithecus, an upright walking creature with a man-like jaw, went extinct about 1 million years ago at a magnetic reversal. I don't think it's an extinct, you know, it's a coincidence that Peking man appeared about 780,000 years ago at a reversal, or that the Neanderthal disappeared at the, at the Lake Mungo magnetic reversal. I, you know, it's just, there's too many coincidences. And I think all of that goes to the fact that our magnetic field protects us from cosmic rays. It, it protects us from radioactivity. And and when our magnetic field reverses, all of a sudden we lose that protection, and all of a sudden we have radioactivity bathing our planet. That is, to me, is what leads. And and there's no question that radioactivity does bathe our planet at magnetic reversals. No question at all. There's there's lots of studies that show that. And why somebody hasn't said, hey, that might lead to evolution. 
I don't I don't understand. So to me, to me, it's more akin to the biblical sense of creation than it is to Darwin's idea of short of, of long orderly uh, evolution. In the book, you talk about solar flares, northern lights, the magnetic star sunspots and magnetic reversals. Can you talk a little bit about sunspots? Because we're in solar cycle 24 and a lot of people are quite concerned about some of the upcoming activity with sunspots. Yeah, it's two different things really. Uh, yeah, as as uh, sunspot activity decreases, I think that, that uh, we're going to be headed into an ice age because because of that decline in sunspot activity. But one of the things that I that I mentioned sunspots on the sun for is that uh, uh, I've had people tell me uh, that that a magnetic reversal would make no difference on Earth, that it, that, it, that it wouldn't do anything to Earth, and yet uh, when you look at sunspots, which are are giant uh, areas on the sun that are cooler than than other areas on the sun. Those sunspots are created by magnetic reversals on the sun. Is that something that's like well known in science? Yes. Okay, is. I never knew that. But but when that sunspot or the, those magnetic reversals on the sun occur within the sunspots, then there's giant explosions on the sun where where these flares reach out for hundreds of thousands of miles. So these magnetic reversals on the sun literally cause giant explosions on the sun. And 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 I think that the the same thing could happen on Earth is that during a magnetic reversal that we're going to be having giant explosions in the sky above the Earth, and and you know it looks like ancient Indian legends talk about uh, uh, asphalt, for instance, falling from the sky from carbon about carbon falling from the sky, and this. This is where I'm I'm out on that limb, Kim, because I think that during the magnetic reversals, that carbon is actually created in the sky. Fascinating. And again, I'm not alone on that. You know, this um, this book I have talked about earlier that that uh, was studying the the Carolina Bays, they discovered that 12,000 years ago. At the same time as the Gothenburg, now they didn't mention the Gothenburg magnetic reversal. I, I don't want to be putting words in their mouth. I'm, I'm the one that's tying that together. But at the same time as the Carolina bays were created, all of a sudden radioactivity in many parts of the United States, radioactivity in the ground measures 1,600 times more than normal, some places 2,000 times more than normal. That would sure create a, a bit of a mutation, I would think. And at, at the same time, they, they find uh, layers of carbon around the world. And, and at first, well, I shouldn't say at first, still there are many scientists that, that are trying to say that that layer of carbon around the, the Earth, a layer of soot, was was created by humans that that maybe the ancient Indians were were uh, burning the forests in order to to herd animals or something or that maybe agriculture that ancient humans so and <laughs> we're still blaming humans for stuff that happened thousands of years ago but the thing is is that there are some areas for instance in the San Pedro Valley in Arizona where that layer of carbon is more than a foot thick 
And the other part about this is that there are layers. They have found what's called nano diamonds, but they have found diamonds, little tiny diamonds, microscopic diamonds, all over the Earth, well, from 12,000 years ago that were apparently created in the sky. And and they were, you know, in the in the I've read some articles about this. This has been presented at the American Geophysical Union. Uh, by uh, geologist Anthony West. But he says that those diamonds, some of them were so small that it, they were the size of cold viruses, but other of those nano diamonds were, could have been visible to the naked eye and that they would have rained to the earth by the ton. This is his words, by the, by the ton. And so, so what, there we have carbon pouring from the sky at a magnetic reversal. They're blaming it on a meteor. But the thing is, is that carbon pours from the sky on other planets, and a lot of people aren't, aren't aware of that at all. But, plan, it, you know, carbon, carbon pours from the sky, rains from the sky on other planets. And I'm saying, why couldn't it happen here too? What has been your greatest challenge with the reception of this book to the scientific and with the scientific community. You've cited so much science in here. That's why I'm wondering what your challenge is. It's a, it's a short book, but boy, it's got a lot of information. Yeah, it's packed. I guess the biggest challenge still is the idea of, of uh, carbon raining from the sky. That is, that is just, um, that's just going a long ways for people, I think. And yet, and yet it did. I mean, it, there's, it, it's there in the record. The, the nano diamonds are there all over the world. The, the radioactivity is there all over the world. Um, it would have been, it would have been like 10,000 tanguskas going off all at once. But the, the carbon, you know, carbon does rain from the sky on Saturn's moon Titan. And a lot of people aren't aware of that. Uh, because you know, we are taught to think that oil and coal and all of these things are are created um, by ancient swamps having having uh, you know compressed and compressed and compressed and turned into coal. And yet, the Cassini mission, when it did its flyby of Saturn's moon Titan, was able to identify huge lakes and rivers of oil. They have images from the Cassini mission that, that show lakes of oil bigger than the Great Lakes. And I remember reading an article in the Seattle Times uh, that said it's enough oil to make a, <clears throat> to make a Texas oil man drool, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it would. I mean, there's just more oil. They, one of those lakes, they, they called it uh, Lacus Ontarius, <laughs> Sounds a lot like Lake Ontario to me, but but anyway, they named it Lacus Ontarius. It's bigger than all of the Great Lakes put together, and it's filled with oil. And I, I remember reading a, a book by um, uh, Thomas Gold. He was an astrophysicist at Cornell, uh, who is really a, against the idea that 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 coal and oil are formed uh, in ancient swamps, and he liked to say that. As far as he knows, there are no ancient swamps on Titan, and yet that oil is still raining from the sky. 
Now there are there are old Indian um, stories about oil raining from the sky. Are you talking about in ancient India? No, I'm talking about uh, Indian uh, United States Indian. Okay. Uh, and, and and maybe uh, I'll have to find my my uh, reference on that, but it may be also in ancient India. But there are there are um, ancient United States Indian stories about um, uh, about oil raining from the sky and fire raining from the sky, and and I think that that happened during the magnetic reversals. I notice also that your whole book was quoted in Mensa, in the Mensa Bulletin. The American Mensa Bulletin reviewed your book. Yes, in, in saying that, that uh, maybe the reason we can't find any of those, those uh, missing links is because there weren't any. And, and that's true. I don't think there were any of those missing links. Those, uh, I, I, you know, of all of the animals that have ever appeared on Earth, I think only like six, uh, all, but, all but six uh, have disappeared. And, and uh, so most of the animals on Earth appeared here in the last two million years. There's some that, that just messed Darwin up. Sharks is one of them that is that has remained. Explain that. That was fascinating in your book. How come the sharks haven't evolved? The the, the sharks haven't, haven't evolved in more than, than uh, 300 million years. And that was a real problem for for Darwin. Is is why hadn't they revol- evolved? Because if 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 evolution is is a, a, the idea of moving ever better and ever better and ever better, then why have sharks remained the same? Another one that really got to to Darwin, he called it an, an abominable mystery, is where did angiosperms arrive from? Angiosperms are flowering plants and, and the flowering trees and and our our earth went along our planet went along for for millions of years with with none of them and then all of a sudden angiosperms appeared as if overnight as if they would they were dropped from nowhere and so that one that one is is one that uh, Darwin called just an abominable mystery he just he just couldn't come up with it but you know, or look at the whale. This is this is one. You know, if if um, if evolution is all that is cracked up to be, look at the whale. Fifty million years ago, the whale was you know was a, a mammal. It still is a mammal, but it had legs, and it was it was walking on Earth, and and then it took to the water, and and once in a while, even today. Uh, a modern fisherman will haul in a whale that has one of those those uh, uh, hind legs, just just an atavistic hind legs and knee muscles sticking out of its side. I've never heard of such a thing. It sounds oh, wild. Thing? Yeah, it's it's uh, and that was one of the things when I was doing the research that I that I came across because modern whales certainly didn't have any hind legs, but back in earlier times they were land living predators. And they did have legs, and and so you know those useless hind legs are nothing more than throwbacks. But if we call it a great evolutionary advance that humans evolved from a fish by growing legs, what do we call it when a whale discards those legs? You know, is that an evolutionary retreat? 
have we have we really gotten better or or have we just have we just gotten different look at horses i mean uh 50 million years ago the horse had four toes now it has one toe we call it a, a, a hoof but every now and then a healthy mare with the right number of toes one will give birth to a foal that has additional little toes sticking out beside the hoof so what possible purpose evolutionary purpose can we see there I, I think it's I think it's uh, I think it's kind of like accidental evolution is, is what we're talking about. Are you also saying from the first thirty three minutes of this segment that an evolutionary leap can come extremely fast out of nowhere? Oh, absolutely out of nowhere. And this is not something that that uh, I'm alone on. There are so many scientists that have said the same thing. Uh, I don't. I just don't think that anybody has really. Uh, listen to them, but uh, uh, suddenly, actually that's one of the, the, the name of the title of one of my chapters, but uh, all paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. And that's a quote from Stephen Jay Gould, the late Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard. He said that transition between major groups are, are characteristically abrupt. Uh, and then Robert Bacher, he's a, a, a paleontologist in Colorado, but he talks about the, the pterosaur, which seemed, to, and this is a quote, which seemed to burst into the world like Athena from the mind of Zeus, fully formed. Even the earliest pterodactyls already display fully developed wings and the specialized torso and hips so characteristic of the entire order. And it, it, we find so many cases like this, says Bacher, that, that many... Scholars are persuaded that evolution doesn't work slowly at all. So what I look is that is that that evolution sometimes speeds up and suddenly produces totally new adapted configurations, and then the newcomers they learn to cope. They don't. It's not the evolution in the conventional sense. They don't change their bodies to fit the circumstances. They have to adapt to the bodies they were given. It's not. It's not survival of the fittest. It's a rival of the fittest, as far as I'm concerned. Fascinating. Really, very fascinating. It's a rival of the fittest. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, and, and there's, you know, it's, well, going back to Robert Baca, the idea of slow, gradual, imperceptual evolution is wrong, he says. The fossil facts don't read that way. Mass extinctions always come suddenly with no warning. The population is then immediately placed with entirely different species with no forerunners. And then and then uh, <laughs> there's there's one that I that I love. There's a, a British geologist, Derek Ager Ager. He said that geologic change always comes in spurts. The history of any one part of the earth, like the life of a soldier, consists of long periods of boredom and short periods of terror. And I love that one. But those short periods of terror that's when the evolutionary leaps take place. I would imagine that between your book Ice Age Now and your site Ice Age Now and all the work you've done about climate, in combination with the knowledge you have about magnetic reversals and evolutionary leaps, must lead you to a certain perspective of what's happening that's very different than a lot of people. Yes, well... For, for for beginning to begin with, my my first website, IceAgeNow.com, kind of tells the story. Is I think the next ice age is on its way right now. 
which is uh, going uh, against a lot of, uh, of, of various pretend, pretend scientists, as far as I'm concerned, the IPCC. Um, but I'm, I'm getting more and more people that are that are listening. I'm, I'm getting more and more emails from meteorologists and, and atmospheric scientists who who say yes, the idea of, of uh, man-made global warming is a hoax. Uh, when I started out, it took six years for me to get the the first sixty thousand hits on my website. And now I get thirty thousand hits a month. Now, I, I know that's you know I know a lot of places get a lot more hits than that, but but to me that's very heartening is that I that I can see that you know the message is getting out, and of course the other part is that the the, the climate is generally doing what I've been saying. There, I just posted on the website uh, yesterday that Polish scientists just came out this week. They are forecasting that this year, this winter could be the coldest winter in 1,000 years. In wow. You mean in Poland or anywhere? In Europe. Wow. And and uh, now, to be fair, I, I on when I posted that, I also put that the Russians don't necessarily agree with that. But the way the, the Polish uh, forecasters look at it is, is that they have noticed the Gulf Stream slowing down tremendously. And and they fear that if that could stop entirely, that that Europe would be would be plunged into a little ice age this winter. I'm supposed to be in Europe this winter. <laughs> you're you're going to be in Europe. This yeah, I'm supposed to be in London. Oh in my December. God! December. Well, <laughs> during the last ice age, polar bears were were roaming the outskirts of London. I don't know. You know, NASA says no. Gulf Stream is actually warm, so there's a real controversy on this. Just let me be fair here, but but still, there are a lot of scientists that are coming out. There was um, in in uh, May, I went back to the uh, to the climate Fourth International Climate Convention put on by the Hartland Institute, and there was an astrophysicist there, Dr. Habilo. Abdusamatov. I hope I said that right. But uh, he's an astrophysicist from from the from Russia, and not just any astrophysicist. He's the astrophysicist that is uh, handling the Russian part of the of the International Space Station. And Dr. Abdusamatov, he says from his studies, he thinks that we will be entering a little ice age by the year 2014. Well, that's that's only three years away, right? Um, and and he bases that a lot of that on the sunspot cycle. There was another uh, scientist there, Herrera from uh, from Mexico, also an, an astrophysicist who also uh, thinks that we could be headed into an ice age. Robert, how come you think it is that in the context of the global warming media, that the actual temperatures that are being recorded are not being given to the public. Is it true that we've been in a cooling cycle for several years? Depends on who you're listening to. Um, the Royal Society just came out last week. The Royal Society is the probably the most important scientific group in the United Kingdom. Maybe you can see them when you go to London. But the Royal Society, 
uh, has last week admitted that there are, quote, uncertainties about climate change. But then they said that temperatures in the last 10 years have gone up 0.15 degrees. I don't know how true they're being because they also said in that same paper that uh, CO2 is driving the climate, which as far as I'm concerned is a total lie. Uh, CO2 uh, levels rise after the climate war, after the ocean warms, not before. So to me, CO2 levels are, uh, are in effect not a cause. So I don't necessarily believe them. There are other studies, for instance, um, you've heard about ClimateGate and, and, and how the University of East Anglia has been, been found to have been cheating, essentially. In, in right. But you know what, Robert? A lot of people, anything that happens politically, often kind of dismiss these things. Yes. So I think that the geological facts and paradigms surrounding carbon are even more important than the East Anglia event. Yes. Well, the thing is, you know, they talk about carbon uh, dioxide as being something that, that, that is unheard of right now. And here's the thing is that uh, CO2 levels and, and carbon dioxide levels rise and fall with the same uh, magnetic reversal cycle that I've been talking about. They rise and fall with, with the uh, uh, precession of the equinoxes cycle. And it has nothing to do with humans. Is is 11,000, 12,000 years ago at the Gothenburg magnetic reversal, we had that mass extinction. We had spikes in radioactive carbon-14 that were three to four times normal. We had spikes in radioactive beryllium-10 that were two to three times normal. We had spikes in iridium that were two to three times normal. Uh, and, and so... Though that came in sync, then 23,000 years ago we had the Mono Lake magnetic excursion. We had jumps in in CO2 levels. These CO2 levels, and there are there are some scientists who have published on this who think that those CO2 levels are directly connected to magnetic field modulation. So again, this is this is not just me saying that there, there's um, these these things change and did change long before humans ever arrived on this planet. You know, one thing I have to mention, I had mentioned earlier about the, the carbon and the coal and the oil, you know, the, the carbon accumulating on this planet 11,000 years ago. Yes. The same thing happened, and this was one of the things that, again, brought me to write this book, but when I was studying the dinosaur extinction from 65 million years ago for the first book, they kept talking about coal. Uh, is that is that there were mysterious areas of carbon and coal all over the world? Uh, there was a, a graduate student at the uh, University of Chicago, Wendy Wolbach, who who talked about this layer of soot and and carbon all over the world. She figured that it, it must have been that every forest in the world must have burned down uh, at the dinosaur extinction. I'm saying that it was created in the sky. I've been to uh, the, the Royal Terrell Museum in, in Drumheller, Alberta. It is the, it is the uh, largest dinosaur museum in the world, sitting out there in the middle of the prairies. But anyway, I've been there. And when you drive up to the museum, you can look around and you can see a black line in the soil. Uh, it's a 
about a foot thick. But anyway, this is a black layer of coal about a foot thick that formed right at the dinosaur extinction. And below that layer of coal, there are dinosaur bones, there are, there are various kinds of, of, of plants and other animals that existed before the KT extinction. Above that layer of coal, they all disappear. They're gone. I'm looking at this, uh, this carbon and strontium, radioactive materials that arrive on our planet in sync with extinctions and with evolutionary leaps. There, there's so much carbon and coal at the, at the dinosaur extinctions. There's, a, there's a, a, a mine in France, the Bernersart Mine, where when, when uh, miners were, were drilling down into the mine, they discovered an area where uh, there were entire dinosaur bodies buried in the coal. And, and these dinosaur bodies were not, uh, were not uh, they, what they said is they were remarkably well articulated, meaning that they hadn't fallen apart. They were still all together so they could identify. But they, they found these, these remarkable concentrations of, of dinosaur bones in the coal. Then they drilled even deeper. They drilled down another 10 stories, another 100 feet. There were still dinosaur bones embedded in the coal. Now, how does the dinosaur bones, that many dinosaur bones, get embedded in the coal unless coal was raining onto our planet? And, and the, another thing at the, at the dinosaur extinction, black shales. And this is something, again, that I found, discovered when I was writing the first book, is that the oceans have a layer of black shale or, that was deposited on the, 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 the oceans 65 million years ago at the dinosaur extinction. And this black shale, nobody's been able to really explain it, but this black shale is highly radioactive. Some of it is so radioactive that, that they mine black shale just for the uranium content. And so again, I'm saying this is radioactivity that somehow, I mean, there's no question it's there. So we know it, it, it somehow arrived on our planet. Well, how did it get there? I say it rained onto our planet during a reversal. Both in the United States of America and the rest of the world, who at a geological level or at an anthropological level at the highest, highest level of knowledge, have you been able to report your findings and share your book? So far, nobody has really wanted to talk to me. Is it because you're not a formal scientist? I would say probably that's true. How unfortunate. You know, I interviewed Gavin Menzies, who wrote 1421 and 1434, and the findings that they have about who got to America first, how the Renaissance started in Europe, you don't have to be a scientist to be an explorer and a discoverer. Well, you know, I, I think I have to give it time. Is that, uh, uh, okay, I'm not a scientist, but I've spent uh, the last 18 years pretty almost full time. So I've, I've spent more time on this than most people would spend on getting a doctorate. But, but um, now I do have scientists that do agree with me about the the ice age cycle. Uh, there's a new one I just have to put on my uh, uh, website. I haven't had a chance yet, but uh, just last week, Harrison Schmidt, geologist, doctor, he, he was one of the first Apollo astronauts. He walked on the moon, 
And most people forget that he was all that he's also has his doctorate in geology. That's why one of the reasons they picked him. But he just published uh, talking about the Milankovitch cycle and and talking about how ice ages are are in our climate are totally affected by orbital parameters, which is what I of course say in the first book. Um, you know that I had doc that we did an interview with Joe DeLeo and with uh, Dr. Timothy Ball. So on the first book, I do now have uh, scientists who are agreeing with me more and more. And I think it's just going to take time, like, like it did there, it's going to take time for them to agree with me on the second book. You know, we did interview Dr. Schmidt. Oh, did you? Yeah, it was very interesting. <laughs> But that particular paper had not been out yet no, about the Milankovitch. came out, uh, uh, and I haven't even put it on my website yet. It was one that he published uh, uh, for SEP, uh, Science Environmental Policy. I don't remember what, what that stands for, S-E-P-P, but it was just published there, I think, last week. And and I'm busy paraphrasing it so that I don't go stealing his article. And I'm busy paraphrasing it, and then I'll put it on my website. But uh, I mean, he's not saying that an ice age is going to begin next week, but he is saying that all of this stuff is is run by orbital, you know, orbital stretch and precession of the equinoxes. So. And in the, he talks specifically about the Milankovitch cycle, which is exactly what I talk about. That is the cycle that goes with uh, with um, precession of the equinoxes. So, yeah, you know, I'm not concerned about this yet. It's, I, I think I'll be coming, you know, give me 50 years and I'll be an overnight success. I hear you. But you are concerned about a magnetic reversal and you are concerned about a little ice age unfolding. I am right now very concerned about a little ice age. The, the, the magnetic reversal, it's harder to put a date on, on that, but I, I think because little ice ages correlate so well with, with the sunspot cycle, I fear that we're headed into a little ice age right now. How does that translate for our lives? During the last little ice age, the the uh, the glacier levels in the mountains uh, moved down the mountains. I think about a, a thousand feet, something like that. There were now they didn't have during the last little ice age. They didn't even have thermometers. They hadn't been invented yet, and so it's hard to look at the literature and know exactly. They have to go by what happened. But in the in the Alps. There were farmers who were petitioning for lower taxes because their fields were actually covered by ice. And so that would be an indication that it happened. The, the Thames River for every, in London, every year they were able to, uh, to, uh, to go ice skating on it and the ice was thick enough that they would actually hold fairs out on the ice. The other thing though is that, that, um, was food. And that's a big thing that I'm worried about. That's huge. Right now, is that during the last little ice age in in uh, England, for instance, it didn't necessarily get all that much colder, but they began having a lot more precipitation. It rained more in the the winter. the The rainy season lasted five weeks longer in the spring and began five weeks earlier. Well, what that meant is that farmers were not able to harvest their crops, and literally millions of people died of starvation. 
There's there's articles in the in the in the literature that people didn't want to get thrown in jail because they there was cannibalization in the jails. There's articles about parents eating children. It's, it's horrible stuff. Um, so my fear is that long before we're covered with ice, that we're going to be fighting in the streets for food. I, I just put a thing on my website this morning on uh, iceagenow.com is that in in um, South Korea right now, they are hoarding cabbage. And a lot of the South Koreans eat, you know, they eat kimchi like three times a day. But the, because of, of the amount of rain in South Korea, the, the cabbage prices have gone up 400% in the last year. So it would be a little bit like you know, if, if here in the United States, Price of bread went from two dollars and twenty-five cents a loaf to ten dollars a loaf in one year. That's what I'm worried about. Now, I don't sell food. There's, I don't. There's no link on my website selling food, but I am really encouraging people to stockpile food because I think that there's that is going to be the biggest problem we're facing. Now, right now in in Canada, they've had one of the the rainiest summers on record, if not the rainiest, and a lot of their crops are 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 just rotting in the fields. They haven't been able to harvest them. Even the pumpkins, a lot of them, they're not even sure they're going to have enough pumpkins for people to eat in the Canadian prairies. So that's what concerns me the most, Kim. Do you feel that NOAA and our weather, quote, authorities are giving accurate weather information to the public in each city, state, and country? No, I absolutely do not. I I don't trust NOAA and NASA anymore on on their climate uh, stuff. You know, the, and I think you had uh, Joe DeLeo talk about this, but there used to be like uh, six or seven thousand weather stations around the world that uh, NOAA and NASA would get their their figures from, and now you know when when the Soviet Union collapsed, there were uh, like thousands of those stations in the north that just disappeared because nobody could have could afford to to man those stations anymore. So they don't have they don't get the information anymore from those kinds of areas. Uh, there used to be, like I said, almost there's six to seven thousand stations. Now there's only like twelve hundred stations, and so NASA guesses what the the climate might be doing or what the weather might be doing. And most of the stations that have disappeared are stations in the north. So all we're getting. We're getting mainly information from the southern stations. And so, of course, it biases the whole thing, and it makes it look as if there's a lot of global warming. Uh, I don't – it's just about impossible to get the truth. So how is the weather generated on television, for example? How do they do it? Well, you know, there's so many meteorologists that that, uh, agree with me, that that, uh, don't agree idea that they were headed into uh, to great global warming. And, and one meteorologist, I don't know if you've interviewed him, I wish you would, is Joe Bastardi. I haven't. Oh, I wish you would. He's, he's good. He's on IQweather.com. But he talks about this coming winter is going to be a bear. 
he his dad was a meteorologist before him and and he's just passionate about what he's doing and and he has records going back as far as records go and so he's able to you know look at what happened before he's he's able to look at the pacific decadal oscillation and, and things that that others don't look at but the meteorologists the tv meteorologists that are out there are saying no this is not true uh, and I'm trying to think of the TV meteorologist in San Diego. That, uh, and maybe I'll think of his name before the end of the program. But but meteorologists are out there saying, no, it's not happening. No, what's not happening? The, the global warming is not happening. There's a there's a especially man-made global warming. There's a climatologist in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Cliff Harris, who's ranked as one of the top climatologists in the in the world. And he agrees with me enough that he has actually invited me to speak at a couple of the seminars and, and talks that he has put on. So that felt pretty good. But um, the ones who are, don't have a political axe to grind are saying, no, you know, that we're not having unprecedented global warming. You know, on, on my website, I, on, on iceagenow.com, I actually have a chart there that that shows that that this is not even the warmest time in the last 10,000 years. If you go to iceagenow.com and you scroll down, you will see a, a, a chart there. The title is Temp- Temperatures Warmer Than Today for the Most of the Past 10,000 Years. But when you look at this chart, you, you, you'll see that you'll see the what was called the Little Dryas. It was a period about uh, 12,000 years ago when we rapidly descended into a period of cooling, which which correlates with that Gothenburg magnetic reversal. But then about 11,000 years ago, the temperature rose to higher than today, and then it zigzagged up and down, but it essentially was higher. Temperatures have essentially been higher than today for most of the past 10,000 years. And how we can say today when temperatures are actually have been going down based on that, how, how we can say that it's caused by humans is, is, is just a, a lie. I, I can't use any other word than it is a flat-out lie. Scientists have to know. They have to know. I notice also on your site it says our glaciers are growing, not melting. How do you know that? How do I know that? Well, you know, with the pictures that we see, you know, they, they show us pictures of melting icebergs. You know, no one seems to be talking about the fact that glaciers are growing in the United States. And the newspapers don't mention it. The TVs don't mention it. But in Washington State, the Nisqually Glacier, I've been there three times, by the way, in the last 10 years. The Nisqually Glacier is advancing on Mount Rainier, the Emmons Glacier is advancing. In California, the, the world of global warming, but on Mount Shasta in California, all five glaciers on Mount Shasta are growing. One of them has doubled in size in the last 50 years. In, back in Washington, the uh, glaciers on Glacier Peak are growing. Uh, glaciers on Mount Shuxon are growing. In South America, glaciers are, are growing. I mean, I keep reading articles that saying they're melting, and yet there's the Pio 11 glacier, that, it's the largest glacier, I think, in Chile that is growing. 
uh, glaciers, largest glacier in, in Argentina is growing. In, in uh, Canada, Mount Logan, tallest mountain in, in Canada, the glaciers are growing. In, um, in France, Mont Blanc is the, the tallest mountain in France. The glaciers are growing. Glaciers are growing in, in Norway. In Greenland? Uh, it, just, it just goes in Greenland. on. In Antarctic? On Greenland? Antarctic. No, really? I'm not sure of Greenland right now. Really? I, I, I have to, to write a little article about that one, too, because it looks like the glaciers in Greenland are melting enough to lower sea levels by one millimeter a year. <laughs> you can't even hardly measure that. Whereas in Antarctica, in Antarctica, glaciers are growing. You know, the newspaper articles, I'm going to invite anybody to watch those newspaper articles and read them carefully. Because when they talk about glaciers melting in Antarctica, what they're really talking about is West Antarctica, which is a peninsula that sticks out into the ocean. Well, the ocean has been warming, I agree with that, but, but so the glaciers are melting in West Antarctica, this comparatively small part of Antarctica, while they are growing thicker all over the rest of Antarctica. So it's a little bit like saying if the entire United States were covered with ice and the glaciers in Oregon were melting and the newspapers used that as the same, the glaciers are, are melting, that's how dishonest it is, is, is that it's that ratio, is that little tiny bit in Antarctica where the glaciers are melting compared to with a huge amount of Antarctica where they're growing thicker. It covers 5 million square miles. It's, it's twice as big as the continental United States. The, the Antarctic ice sheet is bigger than all of the rest of the world's glaciers put together. So what we're looking about here, essentially, is that 99% of the world's glaciers are growing, and the newspapers are talking about the 1% that are melting. It's, it's dishonest. What do you think about the fact that most of us who are trying to get the facts straight, A, don't know who to listen to, B, there's so much differing information that a lot of us are caught in the middle of it all when there's a falsity and there's facts, and we're in between it. I believe that much of the audience is going to be caught in between. So if you're an environmental activist or advocate and you love the environment on a formal level, you're caught because you feel you have to go with this and then go with the scare that the earth is melting and basically that the earth is warming and that global warming is a problem. In other words, the whole scenario that's been created, we have to go with it supposedly. But then when you look at this other information, you realize that only pieces of truth have been given to the public and put into a mosaic as, quote, a problem rather than a cycle. Even the fact that we can't get accurate information from the weather stations that were here in the United States. Right. And the project that Anthony Watts did yes. to go and check on all these stations. This is the level of due diligence that needs to happen. And yet very few of us have the time, energy or the financial wherewithal to take it on and do it. Right. Well, you know, I'd say is, is that when you're looking at those articles and reading those articles, just notice whether there's an agenda because to me, the agenda is control and to get into our wallets. And if you're listening to someone that's not trying to get into your wallet, maybe you're, you're, maybe 
you're getting the, the straight story. But um, no, it is really scary. If I read anything that quotes, uh, that uses the IPCC as, as uh, their truth, then I already, I already know that it's going to be, as far as I'm concerned, it's going to be a lie. Because, you know, the IPCC, the United, you know, the United Nations International Panel on Climate Control, the IPCC was saying for years that, and warning us that the Himalayas, that the glaciers in the Himalayas are going to be all melted by 2035, whatever. And finally, last year, they got found out that they were basing that on a phone interview with some minor scientist in India who'd never even been there. It turns out, and you know, I've got this on my website, but actually there are 245 glaciers in the Himalayas that are growing, that, are, that, are, that we know are actually growing. So if, it's, if it comes from the IPCC, I say don't believe it. It's going to be a lie. I think the IPCC should be disbanded. I think so, too. I really do. I think that the entire population, sadly, most of it has been deceived terribly. And what's more tragic to me, Robert, is that good, upstanding people who want to do good for the earth and good for people have been brought into the mix and in order to keep their paychecks going, have had to go with the agenda. Yeah, I think I've heard you say, and, and I'd have to agree, agree with you, as, as I think that the environmental movement has been hijacked uh, by by people who really don't care about humans, that, that their main concern is is control, control. And you know, I look at this this idea that we're supposed to cut our our, our CO two usage by eighty percent, and our and our carbon usage by eighty percent. Does anybody realize? that that will take us back to the days of the Civil War. I, I mean, a lot of the environmentalists, unfortunately, I don't think are looking clearly as they think, oh, you know, we, all we got to do is, is use a few more of those curly Q ice, you know, as light bulbs. Well, that would be great. But at 80% decline means that you're not going to be able to use your hair dryer. You're not going to be able to use your dishwasher. You're not going to be able to use your clothes dryer. You're only going to be able to, to turn the heat on in your house one day a week. You're only going to be able to, to cook one day a week. You're not going to be able to, to, to drive your car except for one day a week. So you probably That's not the most work. extreme translation of that. Well, that's what they're trying to pass as a law. So it's not extreme. That is the law they're trying to pass. Is to, uh, the cap and trade wants to take us back to, to, they want us to cut down by, by 80%. So, yes, I agree it's extreme, but that's what they want. Specifically, they've said so. So let me ask you this. This is a total philosophical question. It is not geological. Suppose that it wasn't the IPCC but that you and I and the public found out that there was global warming and it was real and it was here and we're in this long cycle. Let's just suppose, okay? It's a suppose. Right. What would you do and what would that mean to you? Well, if it's the CO2, which is the big, supposedly the big bugaboo right now, is that we are supposedly uh, creating more CO2 because CO2 levels have gone up. I agree. But, uh, okay, leaving out the 
right. There's no political apparatus. There's no new laws coming in. In other words, we have to sort this out. So what would that mean to you? I think it would be wonderful. There's a, I just posted something on my website uh, last week by Hans Schroeder. He's a um, analyti- retired analytical chemist in London, who I met, by the way, when I was there a couple of years ago. But, um, he says that instead of reducing our emissions and thus reducing our industrial output and thus reducing the wealth of all citizens dependent upon those emissions, we should rather work to increase our emissions in order to spread wealth where now there is poverty, in order to have clean drinking water where now there is none, in order to have sanitation where now there is none, and a life with basic education where now there is none. So that leaves out any politics. This is just giving people a better life. You know, CO2 and on this, I think uh, Joe DeLeo mentioned this, but um, is that greenhouses actually pump CO2 into their greenhouses. They pump it up to a thousand parts per million because it makes plants grow better. Right. It's food for plants. But you know what I've heard, Robert, that CO2 in one of the 15 shows I've done on climate, that even if they did all this decrease of CO2, it would be minuscule in terms of a real change in the environment. Right. Well, right now, the CO2, I mean, it sounds like such a big deal, but CO2 is 340, is 0.304 parts per million, something like that. To to put that into a more uh, uh, human perspective, if if our atmosphere were a like a, a soccer stadium that held 10,000 people, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, if this, if this stadium seats 10,000 people, is the amount of, of CO2 in the atmosphere would be the equivalent of three and a half chairs in that 10,000-seat stadium. It's nothing. It's nothing. You can double it, and you won't even notice the difference. So... Somehow that has been turned into something that is good for us has somehow been turned into something that is bad for us. When we did our first climate show last year, when we actually went live, there was a conference in Copenhagen. And that very same day, the EPA declared CO2 a toxin. Yes. Fascinating. Yes, that is that is a that is an attack on the American public as far as I'm concerned. And and. The cap-and-trade law has now been shot down, but because the EPA has become so so powerful, I think we're going to be seeing them doing end runs in every possible way, and they're going to be, uh, my guess is that they will be declaring new regulations that will accomplish the same thing that that, uh, we're all so much... It's it, it, to me, it's a, it's a it's a tragedy. It, it's a shame. It's an absolute shame. One more thing before we close this segment: the number of underwater volcanoes is staggering. Yeah. Talk about that and the impact underwater volcanoes have on our environment. Yes, because you know when we talk about global warming, this is one of the things I say in the in my first book. It's not global warming; it's ocean warming. 
It's not caused by humans. As far as I'm concerned, it's caused by underwater volcanoes. And that's another place where I'm getting a lot of scientists that are beginning to come over to my side. But when I first started uh, started researching for Not By Fire But By Ice, back in 1991, that's how long I've been doing this, but when I first started researching it, scientists said that 80% of all volcanic activity occurred underwater. They also said that there were about 10,000 underwater volcanoes in the entire world. And so those underwater volcanoes, by the way, they pump lava into the sea that's 2,100 degrees hot. It's 10 times the boiling point. Gee, I wonder what's heating the oceans. Well, anyway, that was 1991. They thought there were 10,000 underwater volcanoes. In 1993... They discovered more volcanoes. They, they discovered uh, rift volcanoes off the, the west coast of the United States. Uh, they discovered coaxial volcano, which is a rift volcano off the coast of, uh, of, uh, of Oregon. That's about six miles long. Now, a rift volcano, it's, it's not like we think of these conical-shaped volcanoes that rise into the sky. These rift volcanoes are just long cracks in the ground that open up or, or cracks in the seafloor that open up, and then lava pours out of them. And that lava can come out without hardly any earthquakes, so you hardly even know it's coming. So they discovered this co coaxial volcano uh, off the coast of Oregon. And then later on, they discovered another 1,100 uh, underwater volcanoes off the coast of uh, Easter Island. So in, a, in just a matter of months, they increased the, the world's supply of, of known underwater volcanoes by 10%. Well, that was 1993. Now, NASA and NOAA estimate there may be as many as 3 million underwater volcanoes. I mean, they were off by, by orders of magnitude. Now they estimate that there are 3 million underwater volcanoes. They don't know how many are active. They, they, they estimate that several thousands of those are, are active. I know that's not a very precise term, but that's the estimate. But, but anyway, they're pumping lava into the seas. In, in, the, in the Arctic Ocean, you know, I don't deny the Arctic Ocean has been, over, has been heated. But I don't think it's caused by humans. I don't know how... Uh, uh, farmer on his tractor in Kansas is going to heat the, the water in the Arctic Ocean. But what they have discovered, there was the Max Planck Society that wanted to explore underwater volcanoes in the Arctic Ocean. And they sent a submersible down and to check out the Gakel Ridge. The Gakel Ridge is a chain of underwater volcanoes underneath the Arctic Ocean that is bigger in the Alps. I mean, it's a huge chain of underwater volcanoes. It's about 1,100 miles long. And they were totally shocked. They found that it's so active down there that in some cases, they had to be very careful that the, the heat coming out of those underwater volcanoes didn't actually melt their, their submersible cables. Now, when I wrote the book, I, I mentioned the Arctic is that Scientists have been confused because so much of Canada during the last ice age was covered with two miles of ice, and yet their research shows that the Arctic 
didn't have any more ice on it than it does today. And they couldn't understand why. Well, those underwater volcanoes would explain that, and they would explain why the Arctic is opening, is heating now. And now that ties us back to the magnetic reversals is because volcanic activity and earthquake activity both increase dramatically in sync with precession of the equinoxes, in sync with the Milankovitch cycle. Wow, that's profound. Yeah, and it's it's there. I mean, uh, I mentioned in my first book, uh, I think, boy, I'm trying to think, uh, Barbados, I think it is. But anyway, scientists have discovered that Barbados has actually risen out of the sea in sync with precession. Because when you fly into Barbados, as you look down, you can see that Barbados is terraced. And they've been able to, 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 uh, to date those terraces and they realize that Barbados has been pushed out of the sea by huge earthquakes that date in sync with this same cycle. So, yeah, I, I expect that, that we will see earthquake activity increasing dramatically. I think we'll see volcanic activity increasing dramatically. I think we'll see uh, uh, precipitation increasing because as volcanic activity increases underwater, We'll see those oceans warming, which will create more and more evaporation rising into the sky. And at the same time, the increase in above-water volcanic activity will cool the skies. So you put that together, uh, warming oceans and cooler skies, you've got the recipe for an ice age. I really don't know what to say, but it sounds like you have compiled and researched many of the aspects of the wheel of the situation. I just don't think that most of us are in a mindset to deal with what this could mean. And I think that many of us, Robert, are preparing improperly for yeah. the coming times. Well, there's one thing, though, you know, that because I've had some <laughs> a lot of people say this sounds like gloom and doom. And and I agree in many respects that it does. But, you know, there's one thing about it is that, that our ancestors did make it through. I don't know how many of them made it through, but they did make it through. And so I don't think it's totally doom and gloom. I think what we have to be doing, though, is figure out what was it that they did. I mean, we've been so busy trying to comprehend what killed the dinosaurs and, and what caused so many extinctions that we've, we've almost ignored what traits the survivors may have shared. Because so many animals made it cost across the KT boundary when the dinosaurs went extinct, and so many animals survived other extinctions, they must have left clues. And the dinosaurs and millions of other animals went extinct at the end of Cretaceous, but 86% of the freshwater animals survived. So we got to find out what it is about freshwater as opposed to saltwater that helped protect them. Uh, during the the, the uh, KT extinction, the dinosaur extinction, where the, most species where the adults weighed more than 55 pounds when extinct. So what was it about the smaller ones that saved them? The Neanderthals went extinct at the Lake Mungo of magnetic reversal, but we modern humans we lived in Europe at the same time, and we survived. So what did we do? Uh, the, the European forest elephant went extinct at Mono Lake magnetic reversal, but our ancestors survived. The, the mammoths went extinct, 
millions of mammoths and mastodons. They, they all disappeared 11,500 years ago, but our ancestors survived. So there's something there. There's stuff that we can do if we can figure out what it is. I mean, I don't know, Do we do? was it because we lived in covered dwellings? Uh, so would our homes be our salvation? Would our cars be our salvation? You know, I don't like, we haven't talked about Tunguska at all, but uh, I don't like, you know, I think essentially we had hundreds of thousands of Tunguskas exploding over our heads at the, at the mammoth extinction. And something blasted those two and a half million holes, the Carolina Bays, into the ground. And, and those, you know, those holes in the ground are there. They're, they're impossible to deny. They're part of the forensics. Something has been attacking our planet every 11,500 years. Something. I don't think it's meteors. But, but, you know, just as we went through our resources into landing on the moon, I think we need to mount a concerted effort to find ways to protect ourselves from a geomagnetic reversal. I'm not qualified to do that. But I'm hoping that if I keep screaming about it and yelling about it enough, that that people will. You know, would it help if if uh, because we're going? I think we're going to see ever increasing amounts of radioactive materials raining from the sky. So would it help if we added lead to our roofing materials to protect us? Would would that help? Would it help to have individual protective suits? Would it help to have underground bunkers? What do you think about the underground bunkers? Well, in Huntsville, Huntsville, Alabama, they're actually activating old Cold War fallout shelters. Uh, Huntsville, it's now uh, it's the, the three feet, three K's quarry. It's an abandoned limestone mine big enough to hold twenty thousand people underground. But another one is, what do we do about our to protect our food supplies? Would we be, you know, would it be enough to simply cook our food a little longer? Um, would it be enough to, to boil the water? Probably not. This nuclear physicist, Dr. Richard Firestone, selling, says that boiling will not remove the radioactivity. So I don't know. Is there a chemical we can put in? We should be, be testing. I mean, our ancestors made it through. They didn't know about polarity reversals. They didn't know about equinoctial precession. They didn't know about strontium or uranium or any other kind of radioactivity. And yet... Some of them made it through. And so if, if they were able to survive that Holocaust with their limited knowledge, then I don't see any reason why we can't do the same thing, provided that we, that we pay attention. I'm delighted that you've joined us today, Robert. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? No, I think I've probably worried people enough. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, listening to, and learning from Robert Felix, the author of Ice Age Now and Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps. If you want to speak with Robert or contact him and go to his site, iceagenow.com. And Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kim, for all of the work that you're doing, getting the word out. Thank you very much.